Okay, Hebrews 10, and this morning we're probably going to get to a section where there's a warning. This is a little hot. The warning will be um, the fourth such warning. There are four. There are warnings in Hebrews about neglecting salvation, about not listening to the Lord, or in various warnings against apostasy. There's also one in Hebrews 10 that I think is very interesting. But we were on verse 15, and so the first topic today is maybe a little aside, but I think it's an interesting one, and that is the inspiration of Scripture. Because it says this in Hebrews 10:15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and upon their mind, I will write them, he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, the reason I want to take a little interlude here and discuss the inspiration of Scripture is that this is one of the passages we look to when we teach the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Because notice how the Scripture says the Holy Spirit bears witness to us and then quotes from the book of Jeremiah. And so the implication is that the book of Jeremiah is indeed the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And I want to assert to you that the sure and certain voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us is the Scriptures. And I think it's also noteworthy to notice that this is in the present tense. So the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, present. So the Holy Spirit speaks timelessly through the Scripture. So it isn't just that the Holy Spirit spoke in the day of Jeremiah, but He speaks to all subsequent readers of the Scripture. Yes, Keith. Just like Jesus now speaks to us directly, it's still Jesus and it's still Him because we can read His Word from the Scriptures. He didn't, it doesn't mean that when He died, they didn't mean anything. Right, so, right, so as we read the words of Christ, He speaks to us. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture, and the Scriptures speak for us. Now, this would certainly make us think of Hebrews chapter 1, uh, 1 and 2, where it says that God in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. So God speaks through the Scriptures. This is a very important doctrine that used to be emphasized a lot in, in just about any evangelical church. But what I'm reading today is a major de-emphasis of this, in fact, a questioning of it. The book that I'm researching right now is called A Generous Orthodoxy, written by a guy named Brian McLaren, and it's supposedly, he's a, one of the spokespersons for this emergent church, which is reaching out to people in their early 20s. I'm very alarmed at what I'm reading in this book, and he goes about as far as you can in denying the inspiration of Scripture without being totally heretical. And what he says is that basically you have the human authors and we should pay more attention to them and how they saw things in many different ways and not be so concerned about the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scriptures. Why? Because he's promoting mysticism where you go and you have this mystical experience and that's how you meet God. And one of the doctrines of the Reformation that was absolutely hammered home by Luther was that God speaks through the Scriptures. 
the difference that he's saying is that men, these men that wrote the scriptures had an experience with the Holy Spirit, they had a feeding of the Holy Spirit, we can have the same feeding of the Holy Spirit, and we don't have to listen to what these men read, because they could be pertinent or not pertinent, we'll have our own experience with yeah, well, the new, the way of looking at it is that in our in our experience with the scripture, we have to re-experience it for ourselves. And I'm just about done with the book, and my conclusion is that really what this is is neo-orthodoxy. That it's not new; it's the same neo-orthodoxy that was popular in the early 20th century in Germany. And, and let me explain three, just a little three-point thing to help you understand three positions about the doctrine of the scriptures. The evangelical, at least the historical evangelical position that we would hold to is that, is that the Bible is the Word of God. So when we say the Bible is the Word of God, that means it is eternally God having spoken and God does speak to us through the scripture and the meaning of the scripture is the meaning of the authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it means the same thing to all subsequent generations. It doesn't have multiple meanings depending on who may be reading it. The, the whole, God has inspired the Scriptures. The meaning of the Scriptures is the meaning of the original authors as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that is one meaning, not multiple meanings, unless they purposely use a dual reference where, uh, in other words, the author can purposely put Two meanings in, but then it's still controlled by the author, not by the reader. It's something we know with our reason. You can read it, and the words actually mean something as a word itself, or the context. It's something you can approach with your Right. Mind. Someone skilled in the grammatical historical method, anyone, can determine the meaning because it's already there, having been written in the words of the authors. Okay? And so it has not any particular meaning, depending on how many readers there are, but one meaning, and it's our job to understand that. That's our hermeneutics, it's called. Now, that's one view. The Bible is the Word of God. Now, the liberal view is that the Bible contains the Word of God. The Bible contains the Word of God. Now, that would mean that though holding to the Bible in the church, the liberal idea is that we need to go back because these people had mythological understanding. In other words, they were ancient people with ancient cosmology. So they believed, they probably believed the earth was flat, so they say. Although I don't see the Bible claiming that. They believed in demons. They believed in miracles. They, they believed in angels. They had all these beliefs. And so in the, late 19th century and the early 20th century in the liberal sphere, there was this demythologizing the Bible. That we have to go back and uncover the parts of the Bible that may actually be the Word of God. Right? And that would be the liberal tradition that they often would say the ethical teachings of Jesus were the Word of God, but not the theology of Paul. Things like that. And actually, you almost get that out of this McLaren. Now, the neo-Orthodox view that was popularized by Karl Barth and Paul Tillich and others in Germany in the early 20th century, which was supposedly to, to save the Bible from liberalism. The idea was that modern, rational man 
after the Enlightenment can't be expected to believe in miracles, can't be expected to believe in creation in seven days out of nothing, can't be expected to believe you know, that demons were causing sicknesses, that Jesus cast them out and people got better. So we've got to do something to save the Bible. The liberal idea was just find the actual words of God in there and throw the rest out. The neo-Orthodox idea was this, that the Bible becomes the Word of God. Okay, so the Bible is a device that God can use to give us our own encounter with God now. And this device isn't necessarily dependent on the grammatical, historical meaning of the words in the Bible, but we have to have a blind leap of faith whereby we basically decide that the Bible becomes the Word of God when we have an experience with it. So the Scriptures become malleable and can have different meanings to different people depending on what experience they have with the Scriptures. And so, in a sense, you have a self-actualizing experience whereby um, the Bible becomes the Word of God in your experience. Now, the problem with that approach is that the reader determines the meaning, not the writer. Okay, And so, you can say, when I read this, this, this means this to me. And you can't, and, and you have no business telling me my meaning is wrong because I got my meaning and it works. Okay. What ends up happening in the, the background I come from, like my father-in-law, my father this is that uh, you read the Bible and the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you impressions about what it could mean. You there's a, that's a revelation or you have a, a revelation of what it means. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it context or what the words mean, but I have an impression of what the word means, and therefore that's true. Well, the trouble is, you can read the same passage and have an opposite yeah, view, right. and when you're trying to bring the scripture to bear to solve a life problem, or to, what does the word of God say about this issue, you have, you consider truth, I have what I consider truth, and you do get out, it's kind of who, you know, my prophetic stick is bigger than yours. So what you, what you end up with then is needing a hierarchy of somebody right. above you in a hierarchy that says, no, to me it means this, and you have to submit to it. As a matter of fact, that's what's kind of interesting, um, because anytime you have these multiple meanings determined by readers, and I should go back, let's backtrack, do you mind a little church history today? <laughs> All right, if you go back, way back to the roots of this, it was found in Roman Catholicism way back, way back. Um, there was a guy named Origen who, who was a church father that I consider a heretic, who was a mystic, and he came up with the allegorical method of Bible interpretation that he borrowed from the Greeks. And he, he claimed that there were, there were levels and meanings of any scripture. And they ended up coming up with like five different possible in ways of any scripture being interpretation, interpreted. The literal meaning, the historical meaning, the allegorical meaning, the, the spiritual meaning, the ecclesiastical, whatever they were. I can't remember all five. And that became part of Roman Catholic tradition. Now the problem when you, is that when you have these allegorical meanings that aren't determined by the scripture itself, any of which could be valid, as Keith said, then you get a problem where you can go anywhere with this. You can have a million readers and a million meanings all finding different things. 
Well, the Roman Catholic in their very ancient history realized that that's going to be a major problem. And you couldn't ever have any parameters and guidelines to keep people from going too far this way and that way. So they came up with the idea that the church has the authority alone to interpret the Scriptures. And so the meanings, the only meanings that can be found, even though there are allegorical meanings, are the meanings that are validated by the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's the Catholic version of it, all right? That there are allegorical meanings, but only the church can decide what they are. So that's very similar to the neo-orthodoxy, which would say, well, the Holy Spirit has given me this witness that tells me this is what it means, and it doesn't have to actually fit with anything in the grammatical historical method. Now, I'm going to say this, that the Bible is the Word of God, that the meaning of any scripture is determined by the author, that is, the human author as inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that the means to the meaning is through the text that in the historical grammatical method of interpretation, and that we would interpret the Bible as we would other writings to determine the author's meaning. Is, does preterism and like amillennialism, does all that stem from then misinterpretation? Well, I, I think it's misinterpretation, but many preterists and amillennialists would agree with us on that the Bible is the Word of God. What they're arguing is that the author intended these things to be taken allegorically. Okay, Keith. And then. I think the difference is, I mean, there's people that believe differently than we do or than I do. But if both people believe that the word means what the author meant and that you can look and study the text in the original language and see what the words mean, then you have a basis to discuss, and we still may right. disagree because I believe that this word in this context means this. He believes that this word in this context means that, and you end up with a weaker position or a stronger position based on the grammar, but you have a way to actually discuss and come to some right. agreement or an understanding of why you disagree. When you start thinking, well, your interpretation is for you, and my interpretation is for me, well, then it, it, it's all fuzzy. There's no way to actually discuss it anymore because my opinion of, you know, I think the Holy Spirit's a pig. Is every bit as valid as you believe the Holy Spirit is this? Because I feel he's a pig and you believe... You, you have no basis to even argue. I don't yeah. think you, you don't have any commentaries on the other side. There's nothing to comment Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Because when I'm reading is Brian McLaren's book on his emergent church, and he's one of the proponents of it, there's no biblical exegesis in the entire book. None. Because it's irrelevant. Irrelevant. In other words, he wouldn't take a scripture and give grammatical evidence that it means this and not the other thing because he doesn't believe that's how you learn. Okay, so you can tell where somebody's coming from by just how they would argue. So you could have preterists that are very conservative in their biblical interpretation. They just believe that Jesus literally was saying all these things will be fulfilled before 70 A.D. And that's how they interpret Scripture. But give the, they would use similar arguments than I would, only going back to Scripture. And you, So then the reader has to decide who's being honest with the Scriptures. Yes? Uh, some of the letter of Jacobus channels something on the terms of the 
versus... Yeah, the subjective will be relativistic, right. Well, both of those things are part of the process of interpreting Scripture, okay? We would go to the, the Greek. The, let's say there's, there's certain words used. You can look carefully at the word and see the range of meaning. All right, so like in English or anything else, the word love, for example, has a range of meaning. It can mean I prefer, I, I, I'm a baseball fan. I love baseball. Or it can mean I love my wife. That's a different range of meaning. Leaves it better be. <laughs> or you're in trouble. Okay. Now, so if you're just, <laughs> yeah, the one better be different than the other in a superior way. Now, we can determine that in English because we could look and see the context. If somebody's writing a love letter to his wife on Valentine's Day, we know that it's different than he's writing somebody he just met at work and say, hey, I love baseball, let's go to the Twins game. We would know it has it means something different. Well, the same thing holds true in Hebrew or Greek or any language. And so you can look in like the A.T. Robertson, you know, and say, okay, here the, here's the Greek word phileo or agape, and then each of those has a different range of meanings. And then you go to the flow, as you said, the, the grammatical context, and say, what's being talked about here? And... Often within the range, that, that's how you determine which of those meanings within the possible range are the one that is in, in mind. But my point is this, that we're agreeing that that's what we ought to do. Okay? In other words, we're agreeing that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, which is denied by this Brian McLaren. He just goes nuts rejecting that one. And, um, Verbal meaning that God inspired the, the authors so they used the words that God wanted them to use, although they used them in their own way. Yeah, that each word is inspired, not just the basic idea. And that there's a full inspiration of everything that's in the Scripture. Now, see, see you end up in a different world if you have a different view of this. And somebody said it's like playing chess and checkers on the same board. Let's say I'm having a theological discussion with a neo-Orthodox person. Or like Keith is talking about his relative. See, much of the charismatic movement has a neo-Orthodox understanding of Scripture. They just don't know it. And I think that their leaders were trained in neo-Orthodox seminaries. Because many of the mainline Protestant seminaries were neo-Orthodox in the 20th century. But they don't even talk about that. They talk about the Holy Spirit's telling me what it means. That's just neo-Orthodoxy. So if I'm debating with a neo-Orthodox person about the meaning of a text, and, and we're, there's no common ground. I'm saying, no, wait a second. The Greek says this. The context says this. Other passages that are similar say this. Paul Here's what Paul means when he uses the word justification. And here's all the context of the justification when Paul speaks about it. And here's what it means in the Bible. And they're going, well, I read that and the Lord told me. And you're, you don't have anything to talk about. You're playing, like, like somebody said, you're playing chess and checkers on the same board and you're not getting anywhere because you can't agree on what's authoritative and what it means that it's authoritative. All of the methods that you've described, other than uh, how we interpret Scripture, and the Bible is the Word of God, all of the other methods that you've described so far this morning are all subjective. And the Bible says the heart is deceitful. So if you're 
you know, who can know it? And if you're looking at it from a subjective point of view, you're standing on, on Martian ground. Well, as soon as you go to sub, your good point, Dean, he said, if you didn't hear this, it's subjective. These other views are subjective. In other words, let's say we believe the liberal version. The Bible contains the Word of God. So who decides which parts are the Word and which parts aren't? Well, the preacher or the reader. I had a great hermeneutics teacher when I first got to seminary by the name of Bob Stein, who's written a book on this that I recommend. I think Carla got that book from me. And it's a very basic thing that he that says there's three different things you can decide to determine the meaning, the author, the text, or the reader. And he shows, well, the text is just a vehicle. It doesn't create meaning. Writers who make text create the meaning. The text is the vehicle to bring the meaning to the reader. The reader determines the meaning, then you got as many meanings as you have readers. So the only viable one is that the author determines the meaning, and then he proves from all human communication. If I write a letter to somebody, whatever I mean, I do my best to write words that get that meaning to the reader. And I wouldn't expect if I wrote a letter to somebody, they're going to take it and say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told me Bob means this. <laughs> then they're putting, wait a second, no, I'm trying to tell you what I mean. Just read it. Yes. <laughs> right, you have an intelligent writer with a meaning in mind. And so that's how we take the scripture. Now, once you go, you're dead right, it's subjective. So if we don't have the grammatical, historical means of interpreting scripture, and we say the Holy Spirit is telling us what it means, and that may be as many meanings as you have readers, you have no authority. You have total subjectivism. And what you will end up with, that I've argued elsewhere, is very much what the Roman Catholic Church ended up with. When they accepted the allegorical method, they ended up having to create this church authority with a teaching magisterium that determines the meaning. Because there's no other way to keep people from going anywhere. Well, then what happened, sadly, was pretty soon the Bible was just taken out of the hands they had just the Latin Bible and only the scholars had Latin and the people didn't even have access to their own scripture to do their own reading and study. Well, the Reformation changed that. But if you go back to the allegorical, subjective method, you will end up with some version of a teaching magisterium. And in, in, in some movements, what they have is apostles and prophets. And these apostles and prophets, whoever the big wheel is, determines what the Bible means, not... This text itself. I think what you end up with is a system that's inherently abusive. Because you look to a man to have authority based on his feeling what the passage means, you end up having a man claiming to speak for God authoritatively. What he says is a sin, what he says is not a sin, and he has the ability then to separate you from God based on his feeling. Yeah, and, that's, and, and it's sort of an undoing of the Reformation. Anytime we dip into that, we go back to the old Catholic system. So, what I'm saying here, that the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scripture, it has the meaning intended by the author, and that it doesn't have as many meanings as it has readers. It has the meaning intended and not any other meaning. And that it's up to us to determine that meaning and believe it and submit to it. And inasmuch as the Scripture is expounded clearly and accurately, we learn what God has said. And not only do we learn what God has said, we learn what God is saying. Because it is timelessly speaking to us. So when he says here, the Holy Spirit 
bears witness, present tense, that the Holy Spirit is still telling us today that in the New Covenant, God writes laws on people's hearts. That's God telling us that today. So we do have a timeless word, but it's the one that's in the Scripture. Um, Mike. Okay, that's, let me repeat the question because it's a very good one, and then I've got some passages to look at. Uh, the question was, does the Spirit help you understand the Bible? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Very good question, and, and the, the reference was that John, the Holy Spirit, will lead you into all truth. Now, the question there, uh, Mike, in the, in the passage in John, whether that was particularly addressed to the apostles who would themselves, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write the New Testament, which is how I tend to take it, all right? That the Holy Spirit gave inspired truth to these apostles who wrote it in the New Testament. And I wouldn't say that we would have that same level of inspiration, otherwise we could be writing the Bible. Okay, but there's another passage that brings up the same issue, and that's 1 Corinthians 2. Okay, does the Holy Spirit lead us to the meaning of the Scripture? Uh, let's go to verse 11, 1 Corinthians 2. And then this, I think this will be very helpful in our understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in, through the Scripture. For among men, for who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but as in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. For a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Now, that would lead to the idea that the Holy Spirit tells us the meaning of the Bible, which would lead us back to the neo-Orthodox view. Now, I'm going to suggest something here, and based on Paul's teaching, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says the message of the cross is offensive to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Amen. Now, was Paul saying that they couldn't comprehend the idea. No, the idea that God sent His Son, who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross for sins, and who raised on the third day, is understandable by anybody with, without some serious learning disability. Right? Amen. Now, per, anyone with a grasp of human language and ability to learn without you know, having some, you know, being in a coma or having a, you know, some terrible disability. Anyone can understand the idea that a man died and that he was raised on the third day. And he claimed to be God. And they understood it. For instance, the Athenians who mocked Paul, they understood what he said when he said that God raised him from the dead and therefore God is demanding that all men everywhere repent. But they scoffed at him and said, oh, what a mocker, we'll hear him later. 
They did. They thought it was foolish, the idea that God would raise the dead. But it doesn't mean they couldn't understand the concept. Amen. So it isn't saying here that the Holy Spirit will bring into our minds concepts that couldn't be understood by anybody reading the Bible. But it's saying that the Holy Spirit gives us an appreciation for the truth that seems foolish to the world. Amen. Yes. Amen. So, is that saying that the Spirit is in the words? The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the words of Jesus. That's what He says. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in these very words of Jesus. And He also speaks to us through all the words of the Scripture because it says the volume of the book is written of Me. And so the New Testament authors would also be speaking just as authoritatively the words of Jesus that are in the Gospels, the words of Jesus as taught by His apostles. Now, those words are spirit and life, but they are only spirit and life to believers. Amen. So if I reject them and say, no, I don't believe in a crucified Messiah, the words still mean the same thing, but it condemns me rather than saves me. Well, I believe the Holy Spirit guides us to believe the Word, but the process of interpretation is still important. Otherwise, we would think the Holy Spirit is telling us just about anything through the Word. Um, Jesus spoke to those people in John 6, says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life within me. Well, they got mad and left. They didn't like that. The only people that could accept the teaching were believers. Oh, the other people heard it. What, what's your verse? Second Peter one at the end. Peter's talking about so we have the prophetic word made sure to which we do well to pay attention as lamp shining in dark places till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But you know first of all, you know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Because these men moved from the Holy Spirit, spoke from God, and they wrote it down. He's talking about not just verbal, but they also spoke, like Jeremiah did, to us now, that has the meaning that the Holy Spirit gave them to write down. And it's one meaning, God's meaning. Amen. So that doesn't mean we can just have our own private meaning. It means what God says. When it says, thou shalt not steal, what does that mean? Don't steal. How do you know that? Because it says it, right? Okay, yeah. You're talking about do non-believers comprehend what the Bible says? Well, non-believers do comprehend what the Bible says. I think of my neighbor that I witness to constantly. He is so adamant against what the Bible says. He has a true understanding of what it says. Otherwise, he couldn't speak against it. Oh, yeah. If you go on these websites that these atheists have, there's one called infidels.org. Uh you would be amazed at how well these atheists know the Bible. Amen. They know it better than most Christians, and they go through their fine-toothed comb trying to find things that would upset Trisha's apple cart that they could find in the Bible. Uh, they know what it means. They just reject it. So, 
Um, when I took this course from Dr. Stein, it was a fantastic course. He said, if you had this passage in the Bible and you had access to the top Greek scholars over the University of Minnesota who are experts in the grammatical historical method in interpreting writings, and then you had somebody over here who was a new Christian who was born again, and you told the new Christian, now you go up on this hill and you pray about what that verse means, and you give the same verse to the grammatical historical experts who aren't Christians and ask them to study and tell you what did Paul mean by that verse, when they came back, whose interpretation would you trust? That's, he did that in, in our class. And then people said this and that, and I said, I'll take the experts in the language every time. Because they are approaching that from the authorial intent. Even if they didn't believe in themselves. Yes, and I've got evidence for that, all right? Have you ever heard of Rudolf Bultmann? Well, yeah, you've heard of Boltman. He's famous for demythologizing the Bible. He didn't believe in angels, demons, or miracles. And he was a Greek scholar in the 20th century. And in Kittle's Theological Dictionary, which is the most definitive work on the meaning of the Greek words in the New Testament, in uh, Boltman is the one who wrote the essay on the word faith, pistos. And when I read his essay, it is excellent. Rudolf Boltman can tell you exactly what the Bible means by faith, what Jesus meant when he used the word faith, what Paul meant when he used the word faith, what Old Testament, New Testament. Fantastic essay. It's right on. But Boltman himself didn't believe it. So in other words, he had the ability to interpret the words, but he didn't have his own faith to appreciate it. Okay? So... I think that what the distinction is this. The Holy Spirit inspires the Scriptures. They're written down in human languages with the meaning of the author as the eternal meaning of the text. It doesn't change. Now, anybody with skill in reading and interpreting can determine that meaning. Because it's not a secret book. There's no Bible codes hidden in there. Uh, there's no Da Vinci Code. Uh, there's no, you know, secret thing that some Gnostics can learn and nobody else knows. It, anybody has accessibility to it who studies it. But it will do no good unless mixed with faith. Amen. In other words, if you don't believe it, you can very well understand that the Bible claims that Jesus came as a virgin. Why do you think they mock the virgin? I mean, as a born of a virgin. But why do they, why do they mock the virgin birth? Because they don't believe it, not that because they can't understand it. They can understand that the Bible says Jesus lived a sinless life, but they mock that. Why? Not because they can't understand it, it's because they don't believe it. They can believe, they can understand that the Bible claims Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, we've got debates with atheists and Christians on that point. Well, they can understand the concept, they just don't believe it. So what the Holy Spirit does is He regenerates us so that we believe and appreciate this Word. Amen. And so that we take it to heart as the very words of God and we have a willingness to listen and obey. But the Holy Spirit, as He works in us, isn't changing the meaning. The meaning is there forever and ever and ever. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, yeah He changes us, not the Bible. Yes.
know the Bible and up until the time you gave me revelation, nobody else did. Or I figured out the secret. Yeah, so there's a hidden secret meaning. Here's, here's a, a way that some people understand this that I believe is absolutely false. That the Bible is like encrypted. Okay? That the Bible is this encrypted code. Do you know what encryption is? Computer people? You know, encryption would be changing it so that it, it has a fixed meaning, but only ones with the de-encryption program could have access to it. This is like when you have a secure internet thing. You're typing words in English. It's encrypted into something else, so if somebody intercepted it, it looks like gibbly, gibberish. But then on the other side, whoever has the, the encryption can decode it. What's that? The, the key can unlock it and it goes back into understandable words. Now, some people believe that's what the Bible's like, that the Holy Spirit encrypted the Bible so that it can't be understood. And then when you receive the Holy Spirit, you get the key to decode it. And then it comes back out again. Well, you need a decoder. Now, the question is, is the Bible encrypted or not? Or does it mean what it says? The problem with the encrypted Bible is how in the world is it holding sinners accountable on the day of judgment? If the Bible can't be decrypted, unless you have some special status, then when, when on the day of judgment, when, the, when God says, Thou shalt not steal, and the person said, Well, I've stole. Well, I'm sorry, I couldn't understand those words. They were encrypted, and I didn't have the key. You can't, you can't judge me. They're not going to be able to say that. Yes. Secret code in there. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the reason I'm willing to spend a Sunday school discussing this is it's absolutely rock solid foundation for our faith to believe that the Bible means what it says. The meaning is accessible to anyone. Amen. But it's only significant to believers in in regard to salvation and appreciation of the message. And you know, you can, as a child, um, learn John 3.16, and you can grow up in Sunday school and, and know that God so loved the world that who that He said He's only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I heard that. I mean, I, I wasn't saved till I was 20 years old, but I'd heard that my whole life. I heard I heard Billy Graham when I was 12 years old on TV talk about that and say that he knew he was going to heaven. And, and, and I was so blinded by my own sin, I thought, well, I suppose if I was Billy Graham, I'd go to heaven too. And that, that's what I thought. I didn't get what he was trying to say, that you could know you had eternal life, because I wasn't offered that belief in, in our church, that you could be born again. And I didn't appreciate the meaning of John 3.16 until I was born again. Amen. But did it mean something different before? No. No. But I had no, I was just excited about it. When I got, I met the Lord, I started reading John. I go, this is real. Jesus really said these things. It all really happened. And it became words of life because of my appreciation for them. Yes, Dean. One of the things I've noticed, you know, this isn't going to be true in all cases, but a lot of people that I've talked to that interpret Scripture kind of the way they want to is because it's the easiest way to do it. They aren't willing to sit down and study and put in the time. Well, yeah, I, I noticed that when I've debated, particularly, and I, I don't want to, maybe some charismatics aren't like this, but at least a lot of them that debate me, 
they don't like this because they feel like it puts them at a disadvantage because they've been never taught this in their churches. And so if you have to actually know the Scripture and interpret it, that, then they go, well, we can't do that. We haven't been taught that. And you, so you're just an intellectual, and so the intellectuals interpret the Bible. I've been told that. Well, you're, you're just so, well, thanks for flattering me. I don't know if I'm that intellectual. I just believe it, what it says. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm an idolater of the Bible, yes. Exactly. So our minds are so carnal and what have you. We're just trying to use human reason. Yeah. yeah okay. Yes. Is what? Ascent. Oh yeah. Give mental assent. I say I believe that, but you don't really believe. Yeah, that's true. There's a difference. Ryan was talking about that a couple of weeks ago. Remember, he talked about notitia, census, and fiducia. Those three different words for faith, all of which are necessary. You can give mental assent to something, but not have personal faith and trust in it, and it's not saving. I mean, if I, I can say, I believe that I see this, God, you know, God says, if you steal, you go to hell. Then I go steal. Well, I don't believe that. Somewhere because I, don't <laughs> I, mean, I don't believe in hell, or I don't believe in the <laughs> Well, so then when you get on the day of judgment, you'll just tell God, but I stole less than this other guy. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a very good point, and I'll repeat that. In John 12:48, it says that these words, if you don't listen to the words of Jesus, they'll still be your judge on the last day. Right? And then, um, so the scriptures obviously must mean something to people, even if they're not Christian, or how could they judge them? Okay, so there's more evidence that it means what it says. Let me give us some cross. I got about 12 minutes here, and I want to get, we've got to at least complete one verse, or this will be, a, <laughs> this will be at all time low. <laughs> I, we got through a half a verse. <laughs> no, we got to get through at least one. So let's do the cross references to one of these verses here. Uh, let's start with Daniel right here. Nehemiah 9:30. We're gonna, these verses have to do with the scriptures. Okay, Judah, Acts 28:25, Diane, Hebrews 2:3 and 4, Doris, Hebrews 3:7, Nick. 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12. And Scott, 2 Peter 1, 21. And Sherry, you don't want to do one? Okay, uh, Cindy, Revelation 19, 10. We'll see what the Scripture says about itself. <laughs> okay, Nehemiah 9, 30. Still looking? Yeah. It's in the Old Testament. It's in, okay. I always say that. 
read the Bible, it's easier to obey. That it's hard to obey the very words of God because it is hard to obey them. But if you can change it every week, you can make it easier. Well, as a matter of fact, Denise, the, the inability to obey is part of what, very much what God uses to lead us to the gospel and shows our need for forgiveness. If we can, if we can mess around with it to make it more user friendly, we won't see our need for the gospel. So, well, maybe he just meant, you know, don't steal as much as some people do. Okay. All right. Um, Nehemiah 9.30. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Yeah, the point that I wanted to make there was you admonished them by your spirit through the prophets. So the prophets of Israel were speaking under the inspiration of the spirit. And what's been written in the Old Testament from these prophets is God's spirit speaking, not just man's ideas. Amen. Okay, Acts 28:25. Then he quotes the scripture about hard-heartedness. So Paul claimed that when God spoke through Isaiah, that, that it was the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah and that these words of Isaiah were actually the words of God. The words of the Holy Spirit. So here is his view of the inspiration of scripture. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. So it was the word of the Lord that was spoken by Christ and His apostles. So we would not just differentiate. One of the things that Brian McLaren does in his book is he says the words of Jesus are good. Uh, oftentimes it's interesting. Liberalism likes the Sermon on the Mount and some of the things Jesus taught, but they don't like Paul. That's right. Exactly. Amen. And so, now why? Well, because it's, the Sermon on the Mount sounds like nice ethics, Liberalism, by the way, is under, misunderstood today, although I think it's changed. The liberalism of the 19th century basically reduced Christianity to ethics. And they held to the ethical teachings of the Bible, but not the plan of redemption and salvation. Now, it's a little different today because we can't agree on ethics anymore. It used to be that evangelicals and liberals agreed on ethics. We couldn't agree on salvation. Well, now we can't agree on ethics because back in the 19th century they weren't promoting abortion and homosexual marriages and stuff. Well, now that this stuff's come onto the forefront, now even the ethics of the Bible have gone out the window. So we've reduced the Bible even to less than just some of the ethics of the Bible, not even all of the ethics anymore. But that passage says that these are the words of the Lord spoken to him through the, his apostles so that the, the writings of Paul are just as much the words of the Lord as the red letters in the Bible. Amen. So it's all inspired, not just the red letters. Okay, Hebrews 3 and verse 7. Okay, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, and it's quoting the Psalms. 
So the author of Hebrews believes that the Holy Spirit was speaking through the psalm, not just David or whoever wrote the psalm. But it was the Holy Spirit speaking through the human author. 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12. Okay, there it's saying the Old Testament prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit were themselves seeking to understand what the Holy Spirit was saying through them as far as the person and work of Christ and the gospel, which things have come to us. So I was talking about us privileged status to have lived in an age when messianic salvation has come to us, you know, uh, come to us, prophesied through the scriptures by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1 in verse 21. Very clear. That's 2 Peter one twenty one. Men were carried, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's the inspiration of the Scripture by the Holy Spirit. And the words they spoke are the words of God. Revelation 19.10. Okay. <clears throat> this is a voice from the throne speaking to John. And it says, then, then, I, then John fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Amen. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Yeah. Amen. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So confessing is everything. Amen. And the Holy Spirit spoke of him. Amen. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And as we preach the words of God and explain them in their context and bring forth the meaning, God will, that is God speaking to people. That's why the, the, uh, work of the preacher is a sacred and scary thing. This is be not many teachers because you'll come under stricter judgment. But that the, the thing that's necessary is that God's words are never misinterpreted. Amen. The more we give the meaning that's there and proclaim the meaning that's there as inspired by the Spirit, the more God will use that to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment because these are the words of the Holy Spirit and that's His work. Amen. And He will convict. When Peter... That's what I was reading. I was reading this book. That Monday I'm going to write an article on it, but I was reading this book I thought... The biblical authors, everything is just caveats. Yeah, it could be this, but maybe not. It could be this, but maybe that. I believe this, but I don't like this. That's because it's my preference. This whole book, this is what's emerging. Is this the emerging church? I'm going to call the article Emerging Delusion. Amen. Um, no. Is that, did, did Peter get up and say, Men and brethren, I declare unto you that Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. At least that's how I see it, but others have other ideas. <laughs> if you care to see it that way, but if it doesn't work for you, I'll talk to me later, I'll have another version for you. I mean, the Bible says, that's why Paul says to not speak in tongues in the public meeting. Remember that? Yes. He says because um, if the trumpeter... Uh, 
gives an uncertain blast, how will anybody prepare for battle? And if the message is uncertain, how will anybody know what to say and what to do? The words need to be clear. And so we can't go out there and preach caveats and backpedaling and probably not and insecurity and uh, the more you, in this whole new uh, theology, this new uh, neo-orthodox approach, the more certain you are, the more dangerous you are in their minds. And the, the only sin is to really believe that you know something. And the more you're full of doubt and self-doubt and uncertainty, the more authentic you are. And so what do you do when you don't have a certain message that you can proclaim like Peter, that God raised him from the dead, therefore, uh, and, and they, what happened? They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they said, men and brethren, what should we do? He said, repent. He didn't have a wishy-washy message. So what do you do now when you don't have a certain message that declares that all men everywhere ought to repent? They light candles, they sit around, and they meditate. And they see if they start feeling closer to God without any words, without any message. And if you feel closer to God, then maybe you are closer to God. Yes. That maybe, yeah, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna call this Hank 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 Kimball theology. I'm giving away my article, but I'm just kind of working it out loud here. Hank Kimball theology. Oh, okay, yeah, there you go. Who who knows besides Brian? Who ever heard of Hank Kimball? See, you you just Green Acres, my favorite show. So now you know what you now you know what's wrong with me. When I was a teenager, my absolute favorite show on TV was Green Acres. I never miss it. And I call this Hank Kimball theology. Here's how Hank Kimball would, would approach this. He was the county agent, and he could never say a straight word about anything. And so Mr. Douglas, who was trying to figure out how to be a farmer because he was this New York lawyer and he didn't know what he was doing, so he, they had this county agent who was supposed to help farmers because he was supposed to know these things. So he'd call him out because his pig was sick, and Hank Kimball would come out and says, Oh, you got a sick pig. Yeah, my cousin used to raise pigs. No, that was my uncle. Wait a second, my uncle lived in town, and he had cats. And he goes, You know, them cats really were a mess. And, you know, I kind of he said, Well, i got to go now. See ya. <laughs> and he'd be sitting there. He never... He never got an answer. He just got this all over the place and then he'd leave. And so that's why I call this Hank Kimball theology. You ask them, what is the way to salvation? Well, God is very merciful and there's a lot of sincere people in the world and we don't want to be exclusive. God forbid that we'd be exclusive. We believe in inclusive. And I think that maybe if you come and we're going to light some candles and we're going to meditate and we'll help you feel closer to God. Well, that's as good as Hank Kimball's help for Mr. Douglas. Yeah, how is that going to save anybody? Tell them the truth. You know why they won't tell them the truth? Because they're afraid they might reject it. Yeah, so Peter didn't seem to be afraid of being rejected on the day of Pentecost. Yes, sir. Yeah, no law. That's definitely a problem. But there's no law. We don't need to know why we need grace. Yeah. I know. That's like that old uh, hymn um, at Calvary. Then I trembled at the law I spurned. 
Okay, then you flee to, to Calvary for grace, and that's absent from modern theology. Yes. It was the work of the Holy Spirit through the writers of Scripture that gave us the Word. Amen. And when and that was the Holy Spirit's work at that time. But when we use the Word today and share it with people out of the, out of the steps at an outreach, yes, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts. Convicts. Amen. And you draw the line when you use the word. You know where that person is. Right. And it is the Holy it is the Holy Spirit that lets you know that this person needs salvation or this person is saved. Right. And it convicts. Uh, Jessica was telling me that she got this tape out of the library on Cross TV and it had Larry King live. And one of the people on there was John MacArthur. And she said it was an interesting thing because the, Larry King was asking very pointed questions. So she says to MacArthur, now I'm quoting this from my daughter, he says, are you telling me that if I don't believe in Jesus exactly the way you say, that I'm going to hell? Are you saying that? And MacArthur says, yes, I am. (laughs) And so, and everybody else is backpedaling and caveats. See, the thing is, that, that looks... So it makes him look like a buffoon to the world, but it's the power of God to those being saved. So MacArthur isn't ashamed of the gospel. He says, and that happened here. We were having a few years ago. We had an indoor outreach in the middle of the winter here. Remember that, some of you? We opened up, even though it was ten below. We went out there, still found people to bring in, and we were having our outreach indoors, and we were feeding people soup. And toward the end of the outreach, these three young Jewish ladies came and sat down right over here. And they listened intently to the message. And Carolyn, God bless her, Carolyn Christensen went up to them and started sharing the gospel. And one of them said to her, Diane, you heard this, didn't you? Yeah, she told me the story. One of them said to Carolyn, are you telling me if I don't believe that Jesus is the truly the Jewish Messiah, if I don't believe in him? that I'm going to hell? And Carolyn says, yes, that's what I'm telling you. Just boldly said, answered it. Don't, you know, it seems embarrassing to say it, but she just said, that's the truth. And, that, and the young lady said to Carolyn, well, then I've got a lot to think about. How much worse would it be to backpedal? Tell people the truth, even though it's hard to tell, because then you really do have something to think about. It's an honest response, and I have a, the highest admiration for Carolyn. She's a great witness for Jesus. Well, anyhow, we went over. We got through a whole verse. <laughs> See you next week. God bless. Bob, I got a million dollar idea for you. <laughs> How much are you charging for it? <laughs> Secret Bible decoder ring. You can put them in a box of tricks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>